it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. This week, I catch up with Pete Gillespie and Joss Ruffle from Garage Project in New Zealand. Garage Project is a fascinating brewery, one that has always been at the forefront of industry innovation and experimentation, whilst also being one of the more professional and quality-driven operations. This year, the brewery celebrated 10 years in business and confirmed its quality-driven approach, taking out the Champion Large Brewery Trophy at the recent Brewers Guild of New Zealand Beer Awards. In this extensive and thoughtful chat, we look at how the industry has evolved over the last 10 years that they have been in business, their strategy or lack of it for the brewery, the evolution of beer styles and innovation in the beer category, and where they think it will lead, and also whether after 10 years in the business, the pair have started to turn their minds to having an exit strategy or plan for the future of the business. I hope you find this conversation with Pete and Joss every bit as interesting as I did. Pete Gillespie and Joss Ruffle, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thank you. Nice to be here. More than anything, congratulations. Big, big news last week uh, when you were named Champion Large Brewery at the uh, Brewers Guild Awards. Yeah, it was pretty nice. We had a bit of a, um, a celebration uh, last Friday. Just to, we're not always very good at marking these moments. Um, Joss and I both have a tendency just to, you know, it's always nice that something happens, but then we just kind of like keep our heads down and keep working. Um, but I think it is good once in a while just to stop and actually um, enjoy the moment and, and celebrate. So yeah, we had a bit of a we had a bit of a celebration with the whole team, and very nice to actually you know acknowledge all of them because this is a pretty Pretty cool to win this this um, Champion Brewery Award. It's um you know there's a couple of parts to it. Obviously, part of it is is you know the fact that we're you know nudged up into the large brewery zone, which is you know I think massive ups to the the whole of Garage Project. You know I mean we've got a, a pretty cool team of people all the way from logistics to sales, and you know they're the people who've managed to make that happen. So nice to acknowledge them. But then the second part is obviously, you know, it is, it is about the beer and about production. Um, so it's a real nice moment to just stop and, you know, give, give the whole production team a nice pat on the back. And that's not just brewers. People have to remember that packaging is hugely important. None of those beers would have won anything if they hadn't been packaged exceptionally well. So, you know... Not not always the most glamorous job in the world, but it's nice to just stop and um and, and have a little celebration when you can. Because you have grown into the large category. And what size is that? What qualifies you for large in the New Zealand Awards? It's uh, two million litres and up. Two million litres. So, not bad for a brewery called Garage Project. You, you don't fit into a, a a garage anymore. Well, it's kind of cool. That, you know, we did start. 50 litres at a time, and we've managed to make it to this level. I mean, it is also worth pointing out that what makes you large in New Zealand doesn't actually make you particularly large anywhere else in the world. But, um, yeah, we'll still take it. 
two million liters is still pretty significant even in, in Australia. So it's 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 not nothing to be sneezed at. Mm. Fifty liter batches, twenty four beers. I, I still remember it. You know, I, I've been around long enough that I remember when it was announced. And I think we even probably covered it on Brews News uh, ten years ago. Uh, I think Phil Cook was working with you in in at that stage, yes. and sort of you got this very nice email talking about this new beer, this you know, brand that's going to be launched. Twenty four beers in twenty four weeks. Um, things have come on a lot since those days. I think we've done more than 24 beers in 24 weeks this year. So, yes, things have come on a long way, but, I mean, some things have very much stayed the same, which is which is cool. How many beers have we done so far this year, Josh? 70. I think it's <laughs> three so far. So, yeah, our strike, our strike rate's higher than, than, than one a week now. Yeah, I mean, the, the scene has changed just enormously since then. I mean, a brewery might one or two new beers a year back then uh, or have one seasonal up their sleeve and um, you know now it's sort of it's part of the course almost seeing beers releasing at such a relentless rate I mean another New Zealand brewery just released a mixed 12 pack of 12 unique new beers last week and again, I, I guess that's what I was getting at because, you know, novelty has become the catch, you know, the, the, the stock in trade for, for brewers. And so when you guys launched 24 beers in 24 weeks was, I, I would imagine, designed to make a splash and get attention and sort of say, wow, isn't this amazing? But as you said, you know, even as a mature brewery making more than 2 million litres a year, you're still maintaining that frantic pace which you almost have to to stand out in 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 the industry which is a you know that's what you launched with yeah to shock is now normalized i think for us it's it's very much a case of i don't know i mean we we kind of enjoy it do you know what i mean i always feel like if we're having fun then that will filter down and, and and the drinkers will be having fun as well i mean to be absolutely honest with you i mean we seem to spend a little bit more time these days trying to restrain ourselves and we still manage to bang that out. Because remember, obviously, we've got Ardo, but we've also got Marion Street as well where we do all of our kind of wild and, and weird and interesting ferments. So there's multiple sites producing this. And then, of course, we've got, um, you know, we're playing around with seltzer as well with dirty water. So, yeah. We'll, we'll come to that. But, Joss, did you conceive that the business would be like this when you started in, in the garage 10 years ago? No, I think um, a hallmark of GP in the early days is, is no real long-term planning whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we when we started on the what 50 litre those days, <laughs> <laughs> we we started on the 50 litre system for for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, we we wanted to be able to um, get going and not and not wait till we could afford a big big flash brewery to get started. We wanted to go to brew at a level. And, you know, when, when we started, Pete had, you know, a decade plus years of professional experience. And he obviously spent a long time brewing in Australia at the malt shovel. And, you know, he um, knew his way around a brew system, but the 50 liter system was one which we, we could take risks with and we could do things that we wouldn't do, you know, at um, one or two or 3000 liter batch sizes. But you know, when we when we did move up to our initial system, it was a ten barrel, twelve hectolitre system. And uh, you know, I think when we looked at that initial install, I think we just thought if we got this in place, and that would be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> we got that in place, and then we we 
kind of the penny dropped pretty soon after that. It's like, oh man, we actually need to get some more tanks and where are we going to put them? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's probably, I think it would have been about 2014 or 2015 and you were grappling with those challenges then when I first came to the uh, the, the brewery in this crowded garage, it was ever more crowded and, you know, growth and, and you know where you fit things was becoming a problem by that stage yeah i mean we um you know we we managed to swap out the original brew house for a a, a 20 barrel 24 hex system and put in some some double and triple tanks so all of our original fermenters were were doubles on the 10 hex system uh, 12 hex system so 24 hex tanks and they all became singles magically overnight which was great and then uh, we we put a huge number of brights in, I guess, for the from what might not be might be normal in a brewery because we had a packaging hall with a low ceiling height. We we managed to squeeze some twenty, forty, and sixty uh, barrel brights in there, and I think the the sixty when it when it went in, we actually had to lay down some carpet and drag it in, and then push up the roller door, and there was about. A, two millimeters of sunlight poking through and <laughs> managed to drag the tank inside and then um, lift it up. And then after that, um, we ended up digging out the back of the building, um, laying a whole new slab, a retaining wall, and then we craned in uh, 120 hectoliter tanks. So we have this very large sort of cellar at the back that's quite hidden from the street. And um, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it, but, you know, we have... Um, you know, and that's the beauty of tanks is they get they get taller, they get a little wider, they get a lot bigger. And you know, we have our original five 24 hectoliter tanks all on the main wall there, and then we've got tanks out the back that are the same size as those five tanks. It sounds seat of the pants stuff, and one of the things that you've managed to do is keep this brand perception or this you know the the the, the consumer facing feel of being uh, you know highly experimental um, you know dynamic uh, fun interesting brewer but you don't grow to the size that you have without having also put in procedures in place and quality and and, and the things that you know the hallmarks of professionalism and you know I, I don't use that in a neg- in, in any negative way at all it, it, how have you gone about doing that, like creating yeah, that professionalism yeah. that you need to? I think it's, I mean, from day one, I mean, obviously I worked in a lot of breweries prior to Garage Projects. So even though we do have a kind of, have always had a fairly anarchic approach to the creative side of things, I think it's also really important for any brewery to pay enormous attention to the less glamorous stuff, you know, keeping everything incredibly clean. Um, you know, obviously having procedures for everything. Safety, of course, is hugely important. I mean, we have a lot of brewers working here. Um, You know, it's interesting. You sometimes hear craft brewers um, saying unpleasant things about the large breweries, but it's not something that we've ever done. I have enormous, enormous respect um, for these large breweries that produce exactly the same beers over and over and over again every day with almost no variation. I mean, there's a real science to that. So it's a, a matter of marrying that science uh, with, you know, the art of the kind of creative stuff that we do. And I think when you bring those two things together really well, that's that's when things work. You can't really have one without the other, I don't believe. And we... We have a very, very clever team that 
you know, there's lots of aspects of the team that outwardly, I guess, we don't really publicly talk about too often. I mean, very early on, we have a phenomenal program in Wellington called Summer of Tech, and uh, it gives um, IT companies historically a chance to hire an intern over summer, tech intern. You know, so we we jumped on that and and sponsored it and, and got a, a fantastic developer. So, you know, from very early on in TP's history, we had an in-house developer developing back-end tools. We have this internal matrix system. Um, there's a lot of sort of interesting back-end technology that we've been able to accumulate over the years from having those sort of resources. We have an in-house data analyst. We've had that in place for several years now. Um, they're great tools for us as a business, but we do focus very much on on the beer and the creative side, and that's you know these 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 are enablers to let us do what we do. Um, and yeah, as Pete says, like on the creative side, it is um, you know it's it's live. It's you know we we like to respond to what's happening in the world, and so we we don't sort of try premeditate that too much, but. Uh, but behind it all, we have had to be quite organised. And especially if you look at, you know, we we operate now across New Zealand and Australia. We self-distribute in both countries. We manage all of that. Uh, we ran it, manage our 3PLs across multiple states and cities. And if you look at the way we organise our web store and releases, we do simultaneous releases of beers. So we're, we're brewing beers in New Zealand to, to t- time them for a future release in Australia that by the time they release, we've got the New Zealand batch to drop at the same time. And I'm not aware of too many breweries or any brewery really doing that. So, um, yeah, it does keep us busy, keeps the team on their toes. And again, it speaks to a level of professionalism. It's interesting to hear you talk about some of these tools as enablers of, of what you do, where the early days of craft brewing, when all of the debate was what is craft brewing forgetting that it's a craft brewing business is the complete sentence. And we see, we, we started to have, as the industry has become more and more crowded, that the business focus is getting a little bit more. But there is a balance that's required between the craft and the business, isn't there? Absolutely. But I think it's important, yes, to, to think of these things as tools. I mean, it's really interesting. I remember, you know, probably less so now, but when we first started Garage Project, Oh, no, probably still. You come across brewers who feel like, you know, craft beer should just only be about the beer. And I think there were some people who were quite upset with us for, you know, having fun with art and names and being outrageous. I've always felt like, you know, it's so important for every beer to have a story uh, and for you, because I mean, I, you know, I've said this before, I feel like you start drinking a beer before you open the can or the bottle. You know, you look at yeah. it, it draws you in, you get excited, you read what's going on on the back and on, oh, it builds the expectation. You obviously then have to deliver the most fantastic beer you can inside because people aren't stupid. They're not going to be like, you know, carried away by the outside. But it, it it's holistic. It's more, obviously, than just the liquid inside. I think everything has to come together. And then that extends out, you know, obviously to the wider business. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why winning this Champion Brewery Award was just so much fun just at the moment. I mean, there are obviously always sometimes haters who have um, 
pointed out that maybe GP is all just clever marketing and branding and pretty pictures. Um, so it is always nice to win an award where obviously everything's been blind tasted. We took out two champion trophies and, you know, and, a, and an overall. So that's pretty cool. And, and to, to win the trophies, you're competing against everybody. But again, to, to win the large brewery, you're competing against the biggest breweries with all of the quality-focused resources that they have at their disposal. Mm. And the two the two beers that, um, I mean, we got quite a few golds as well, but the ones that took out the trophies, one of them was an incredibly traditional kind of lambic blend, uh, and then the other one was an IPA made with potatoes. So I feel like that kind of sums up GP for you. <laughs> So what is your flagship these days? What, what, what are your biggest sellers? Hoppy Days is, and Beer Beer, uh, Fugazi, uh, strangely enough, over here, which is a 2.2% a low alcohol IPA. Uh, and then even beers like Pernicious Weed. Um, I'm always shocked at the amount of Pernicious Weed we, we produce for an 8% double IPA. Uh, you know, it, Do you know what's fascinating, Matt, is that, I mean, it's interesting, glass, the sales of beer and glass seem to be just dropping off, with yep. one exception for us, which is pernicious weed in a 650ml bottle continues to just slowly grow. And we, we just left wondering, what is it about pernicious weed in a 650ml bottle? Maybe it's just the right amount of drunk uh, in the bottle. <laughs> Maybe it's just not too much, not too little, just right. I don't know, but it's the only it's the only thing that's bucking the trend. It's fascinating. Have you got any thoughts on why that might be, apart from the the, the obvious <laughs> that it's the right amount of uh, you know buzz? <laughs> no, no. It just it, it's obviously the right beer for the right for that format. It's interesting. It sells obviously really well in cans as well, but it just it it suits that bottle. Yeah. Again, and, and that comes back to this idea of you know. Beer quality is something because it does come down to the liquid, as the big brewers like to say. But you can never escape the lightning in a bottle of sometimes having the right packaging with the right label with the right name, you know, at the right time. That is just the magic of timing for some things, or just the you know when, when the tumblers all lock into place yeah. and the door opens. Um, that you, you can never fully plan for and you know how how important is experimenting to just finding those serendipitous things that work i think it's hugely important i mean i think both joss and i feel like sometimes when we try and make something work it's never quite as you know it never flows quite as well the things that that sort of somehow, you know, really take off. Sometimes they surprise us. It's really interesting. I mean, last year we did a we did a pickle beer uh, to, to go along with the Wellington Burger Challenge. So in, in Wellington we have this festival of, of burgers and we always release three brand new beers in can that people can match with the burgers. And we did a pickle beer. So it was a sour beer with pickle spices and, and cucumber and, I'm out. It was great fun. I really enjoyed it. But it's just something about that beer. It's just really resonated with people and it's been a, a huge success. So, no, you can't always plan for it. Um, but I think, you know, like I said, it comes back to us having a lot of fun. And if we're having a lot of fun, then, you know, and being prolific and, you know, certain things will just will just rise to the top. To me, it's a little bit like uh, 
when something is clearly designed to be a viral video, but it yeah. just fails because it is so transparently targeting, you know, if we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this, then everyone's going to share it. But it just looks bad yeah. Um, yeah. because it's so clearly cravenly done. I mean, when we first started, I mean, Joss and I even for a while toyed with the idea of having no core range at all. Um, but what happened was eventually certain beers just, you know, people wanted them and asked for them back. And so it kind of organically occurred. And we often talk about it almost like Spartan babies. You know, we, we throw these beers out onto the hillside and they survive not because of us, but despite of us. You know, like they, they you know, people, people like them. And if the beer is strong enough to stand on its own, it does well. And that's certainly been the case of things like Happy Days and Beer Beer. You know, they're just there because people like drinking them, which is kind of cold. And, and beer beer is a great example because I, I can't think of too many, you know, using that term, craft brewers who were making a beer that was, you know, actually much closer to the beers that craft beer was meant to be tearing down and destroying um, at a time. But it spoke so importantly about the everyday enjoyment of beer. But then it's also ended up be, being imitated in so many various ways that we're seeing so many craft brewers bringing out just that great light lager. Mm. I, th- I think that goes to Pete's earlier point about not not bashing the big guys as well. You know, that as, as much as people love to drink hoppy beer, there's a huge part of the beer drinking world that likes something simple. And, you know, with a, a simple beer like that, there is nowhere to hide your faults. It has to be spot on and perfect. And you know, as much a challenge as, as brewing, you know, any, any beer. But there seems to be a market for those beers as well. You know, I, I, one of the questions I've really come to ask myself when I go back 20 years and I was doing beer tastings and thinking, this is the future of beer. One day everyone's going to be drinking, even if it's just an American, like a little creature style American pale ale. We're showing people that beer can have flavor. It can have, you know, this reward. It's all of these sorts of things. But it's still, I mean, in, in Australia, less than 20% of the market, if you take all of the beers that aren't lager, you're still there and it, it, it's not growing. Um, people might have, you know, in, in some ways, beers like Beer Beer are the new premium lager, that, whereas a, you know, people used to drink a Crown Lager instead of a VB the, or, or a Heineken or those sorts of things. A, a craft version of that same thing seems to be the, the beer that is now the new premium. Um, but craft beer isn't really extending its footprint the way that we once hoped that it would. I think the growth's come in, in unexpected ways, though, as well. Um, we, I think, early on felt um, we had a lot of people identifying themselves to us as garage project drinkers, not beer drinkers. And, you know, and I think we, we definitely saw early on because we were brewing such a wide range of beers that were spicy or sour or sweet or umami. There were people who were interested in flavor, but maybe not just bitterness. And I think as an industry, we were pretty, pretty focused on bitterness for a while. And I think if you look at, say, the, the popularity of, say, Hazy IPA now, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of people coming in who maybe are saying, I like I like beer that has something maybe other than just that bitterness and maybe it is tropical and fruit and some sweetness um, to it. So I think I think we have expanded out now in terms of the, the number of drinkers. But yeah, I think in terms of that that massive 
chunk of you know getting from 20% market share to 50% market share, I think that might might take a little longer. You, you raise a, a fascinating point because again, in the early to mid 2000s, uh, it was the I, the IBU wars. You know who could make a thousand IBU, and and that was the the thing that was getting all of the headlines and. You know, I look at some of the hazies and uh, you know the, the things that still come under the I, IPA banner because of the hoppiness in them, but the bitterness is very low. And I, I can't not think of speaking to big brewers in the late nineties and early two thousands when their mainstream beers were becoming ever less bitter because they were talking about share of throat. You know, we're in competition with the, the wine coolers. We're in competition with the um, RTDs and we need to get young drinkers in and they don't like bitterness. Um, is there a risk that as we make beer, you know, for, for want of a better term, less beer-like, that we end up losing the perception of what beer is? You just, I mean, you have to be very careful because obviously – bitterness in beer it's not always been like that has it i mean the you know the rise of hops is the kind of the hegemonic thing to put in beer um mm. you know was it's beer existed before the use of hops obviously people used other things in there to to define flavor for me beer is about balance and obviously you know sweetness and bitterness is is one way of achieving that kind of balance um, and it and that can be really delicious. But there's obviously lots of other ways that people have always tried to achieve balance. There's, there's sweet and sour, obviously, um, and there's even obviously with things like Rauch beer, um, you know, savoury and sweet. So I mean, it's the thing that's always drawn me to beer is that it is just it is such a broad field with so many different flavours. People have always used anything at hand to put in that beer to try and achieve balance and interesting flavours. Unlike wine, which is obviously, you know, much more regimented, um, beer mm. has that kind of slightly chaotic quality, and I've always really enjoyed that. So, you know, the really, really, the idea of really bitter beer is, is you know, it hasn't always been like that, and the pendulum is swinging the other way, perhaps. But I think, I mean, if you look at our range, we have some extremely bitter beers, and that's great because that's there for the people who want that. And then we have other beers that obviously are quite sweet and that appeals to other people. And there is absolutely nothing, I think, more exciting than having somebody come and tell you that they don't like beer and, you know, you saying to them, well, try this, giving them something, and to them just discovering that, oh, my goodness, you know, maybe they just didn't like bitterness, but there's other things that they can enjoy. That's always really, really satisfying. Yeah, and, 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 but I guess, you know, in, in more recent history, you know, not even talking about bitterness in the IPA levels, yeah. but, you know, I, I, IBUs of around about 20 to 26, you know, for, for, the, for the mainstream lagers, you know, it gradually through the 90s started creeping down to, you know, the, the, the mid-teens and then you've got your know, Corona, which is kind of like a beer these days. Um, you know, it's very, it, it's brilliantly made, but you know, very low on everything and it's, it's, it's very refreshing. And, uh, you know, th there is a place for that. I guess when you look at things like the way that the tax regimes were always set up, that beer was treated as a class of its own, whereas RTDs and spirits were taxed more highly because they were seen as something that 
was desirable to young palates and and you know bitterness is something that is um has an aversion to young palates you know so tea coffee you know teenagers tend to add a lot of sugar to their teas and their coffees because bitterness on the palate is something that you uh, grow a taste to and so beer was always one of those things that was seen as a little bit less damaging um in in that place and so it was the rtds that you know the vodka cruises and the um you know, wine coolers that had to be taxed to protect youth. The more beer comes to look like some of those products, do we risk losing that, you know, the, the, the perception shield that shields us from higher taxes or, you know, that, that's, that, that ultimate syntax of, uh, you know, binge drinking mindset? I think price protects against that for, for, for beer because we are a craft product and we are working with, specialty ingredients and you know we're um as a as a part of the market you know we are not we're not chasing that bottom dollar and you know it's not sustainable Mm. i mean we're we're a living wage employer you know we (laughs) you know we as you all well know as part of the industry we represent 20 odd percent but we make up 50 or 60 percent of the brewing jobs Mm. picking up on sort of pete's point i think what we have done very well compared to say wine is we have been fun and inclusive and there is no wrong or right answer uh, it's all up to personal taste and i think there's probably a number of breweries out there have ended up producing things now that five years ago they would have never imagined themselves doing but it's mm. they've gone down a path which you know they tried something different people have responded and then they've they've sort of tugged on that thread and you know next thing you know they're making heavily fruited ice cream, sours, <laughs> huge amounts of milk, sugar and fruit. And, you know, and, but people are enjoying that. They're having fun with it. And, you know, it's, um, it's not to say that they will just end there as their drinking and beer experience. They'll probably go on somewhere else and, you know, probably come full circle and be looking for a good classic, you know, Czech Pilsner on a sideboard tap in two years time. You know, <laughs> and uh, I guess I was uh, wondering, you know, we touched on seltzer very briefly before. Once upon a time, there was a clear distinction between beer and other products. When you look at some of the ones that even uh, you just referenced then, Joss, and then you look at brewers who have heavily um, got onto the seltzer train, where does something like seltzer, which is a little bit easier to categorize as, you know, targeting a certain demographic and where, where does seltzer begin and beer end, you know, and, and is that the risk that if they're too closely seen as being a continuum, that more classic beer is going to be punished? Yeah, I think um, it, it, it's all really about how they're done and how they're positioned. Um, I, I quite liked um, Ken Grossman's take on it um, when they started doing hard kombucha and he basically said, "If it's fermented, it's got it's got some soul to it, and I'm and I'm cool with that." Now, was that a truth or was that a rationalisation? You know, w- would Ken Grossman twenty years ago have said that, or you know, having seen the glassish ceiling that's appearing in craft brewers that you know we've seen New Belgium, we've seen the you know troubles that Stones had, you know, there were a couple of years where um, Sierra Nevada had plateaued, and you know, businesses need to keep moving or they die you know th- th- there is no stasis that's allowed in in business you know w- w- was that a rationalization that came in because they had to appeal um, and and keep growing i think if you look at how they developed that it, it was probably quite quite organic for them i mean they have a phenomenal lab 
I mean, we've we've been fortunate to brew a couple of collaborations with them now and, and spend time with the team up there. And they've got some phenomenal resource doing research. And, you know, for the hard kombucha, they, they did a long project with the university identifying interesting strains um, and SCOBY cultures that could actually ferment and handle that uh, alcohol. And, you know, they've, they've got deep roots in California and San Francisco to some extent. Obviously, they're further north of the city. But, I mean, it's, it's not a stretch to think, you know, freewheeling San Francisco company um, in, in the 70s that Ken wouldn't be down with making boozy booch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess there's a continuum in that. I mean, I'd, I guess one of the really interesting um, case studies for me is like stone brewing, where on one hand, you know, they were built on arrogant bastard and you're not worthy and, you know, beer has to be, a, you know, a challenge if not necessarily a pleasure. Um, and yet one of their biggest sellers these days is a lime lager, the exact fizzy yellow liquid that they once hated and they make, they, they, they've made a, um, I mean, I, I, if I haven't heard it, I can imagine Greg Cook 10 years ago saying, you know, pronouncing on something like seltzer and yet they're making a seltzer, you know, is it a pragmatic reality of the evolution of business or, you know, would craft brewers circa 2005 hate craft brewers 2021? I, I guess it's, you know, probably arguments of like punk rockers back in the day versus what they've, what they've turned into now. Um, yeah, I think for, for that is, um, you know, that's just a, a, a sign of a maturing and developing industry and, take stone case in point you know they're based in san diego they're right on the border with, with mexico and got some fantastic beaches and maybe you don't want a hundred ibu ipa on the beach every day <laughs> yeah i think it has to come down to fun again doesn't it? we produce products that we think are fun and other people think are fun as well it's an enormous snobbery i personally feel around that idea of you know bitterness Bitterness sort of like sort of sorts out the men out from the boys, and yeah, it's that feels that feels slightly awkward and uncomfortable to me. I really do feel like you know, if somebody wants to enjoy something that's sweeter, that's that's wonderful if you can produce something that they really love. And I guess there's this this concept of is a brewery a snapshot in time, or is it this evolving thing? And Historically, you know, a lot of breweries are, are beer. You know, Heineken is our beer or, you know, uh, Corona is our beer and it, they can't evolve or change or they struggle to or, um, you know, that that was the, the, the sort of the them being genuine is like I'm this one thing. Whereas now I think breweries are almost beer de jour and it's like a restaurant. And, you know, if you started cooking one style in the 90s and you didn't evolve it, I mean, eventually people will probably come back full circle. To- <laughs> yeah. Again, 100%, and, and I, I don't want to get hung up on bitterness or any one element of it, but I guess, you know, craft beer is an – you know, this idea of craft beer is an interesting case study because there was a purity of mission. Um, you know, it was a revolution against adjuncts. Again, fizzy yellow liquid, you know, it was, it was something that was about flavour. So – Whilst all of the things that you're saying, you know, are, are very true on one view, when you go back to that thing that made craft beer possible, which was the revolution, you know, no pasteurizing, you know, malt water hops yeast, you know, all of those things, and you look at what brewers are using now, there has been a a very clear change of mindset um, that 
I, I don't think you can, you know, that, that has to, on that older view of craft beer, put make it seem a lie that there was, you know, that it wasn't a truth, it was a lie. I know what you're saying, Matt, absolutely. And I think, look, I don't know. I think Garage Project has always enjoyed being disruptive to anyone, really. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we did Beer Beer was to be a little bit disruptive. Mm. And I do, you know, I mean, I think that at the time when we released Beer Beer, there was more shock and horror about us releasing Beer Beer. Absolutely, yeah. Releasing something made with fermented Japanese fish. You know, isn't that fascinating? (laughs) I think for me the magic moment with Beer Beer was I went over to Australia and um, I was – it was early days and I was going to do a, um, like a, a, a tasting at, at a bar in Sydney. Uh, no one knew me from a bar of soap, which was kind of nice. And, and I went into the bar. I was a little bit early and I thought, I'll just I'll have a beer while I'm waiting. So I was just sitting down having a beer and these two blokes. And they were like, oh, are you going to go and see this garage project doing a thing tonight? And the other guy was like, oh, I don't know, maybe. And he was like, oh, they do all sorts of weird things with mangoes and chilies. And they said, and then they do this, <laughs> this, they do this thing called beer beer, and it's, it's kind of like VB, only better. And I was like, that, that. <laughs> the highest compliment I could ever imagine. And I was like, yes, job done. I, I, I think this is why I can have this conversation with you both, yes. because you've never, you, you go and look at the pontifications that Stone had, or, you know, even the brew dogs, you know, um, nailing their masks, you know, they actually had a post nailing our colours to the mast and, you know, f- you if you're not independent. They've just gone into Japan with what was once an earth. You've never really painted yourself into any corners with, with, with your approach, but clearly you think very much about all of these things, which is, is, is why we can have this conversation without me pointing my finger at you the way I would just automatically look like with another brewery. Well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a risk you can always come across looking like a hypocrite. Like a total twat, exactly. <laughs> but, but but was that a worry that sort of you, you could sort of see on the horizon that, well, we don't want to paint ourselves into a corner, we don't want to say anything? I think that... everything, everything Joss and I do is, is just a genuine reflection of how we feel. I mean, I think, you know, obviously I've worked for larger breweries. I've seen the other side. And, I mean, I would, would never be openly critical because I've seen – the amount of work and skill involved in doing it. So, you know, we've always been very accepting of that. Joss and I took the word craft off all of our products quite early on because we felt like we wanted to just be a brewery, not a craft brewery as such. So, you know, I think, and it just comes back again and again and again to that idea of it being fun. You know, don't don't ever paint yourself into a corner. Um, you know, that stops you from being nimble and flexible and, and having fun. You know, we, you can still be a very purpose-driven, purpose-led company, have uh, people following your brewery, being excited for it without sort of banging on about the craft beer revolution. I mean, I remember, I mean, BrewDog was distributed by Azahi in New Zealand years ago, and they turned up with a, a phenomenal marketing budget. Uh, they had... Anarchy in the UK, uh, the craft revolutions here, buses like driving around. <laughs> and everyone was like, you know, no craft brewery spending money on bus ads. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, I think, as you say, as Pete says, you can, you, can, you can have fun. You can sort of be driving forward purpose, but doing it in a way that's unique to you. I mean, I think a question we've 
found more interesting over the last several years is, you know, how do we stand out um, when we have access to all the same raw materials and ingredients? Um, and that led to the creation of the Harpy Research Breeding Program. Like, well, let's roll up our sleeves and get involved in actually creating some new ingredients and you know, have some things that we can use that are unique to us and then brew beers with them, you know, and then let people try that. Uh, and then that's, that's the great thing about the industry is, you know, it's one of the oldest professions in the world, and yet it's still constantly changing. There's new discoveries all the time of techniques and approaches and ingredients and yeast strains and when to add things and when not. And uh, it's just constantly stimulating from that side of things. And so I think that's enough. You don't need to be banging on about the craft beer revolution. And Why criticise other people as a way of promoting yourself? Just keep your head down and do something fun. Let that be what what they write about. A hundred percent. And again, that's why I can have this conversation with you guys about it. Because and it was interesting to hear Pete say that you know we took craft beer off our labels a while. And I remember you were the first ones that really did that because there was you know the craft beer was and defining it. And uh, you know we we recently had that situation in Australia where Stone and Wood um, not long before they sold um, released a Flint glass, three point five liter bottle that, you know, was obviously targeting an, an industry. And they said, "Well, we never said we were a craft brewery. We we're always a regional brewery." And you kind of go, "Well, you kind of did. You just haven't for a while." But you know, you you certainly use that as as your start. And you know, and there, there have been various iterations, and then suddenly they sell. And uh, you know, we never said we independence mattered. And you go, "Well." Yeah, you, you you did do that. You know, Garage Project has never really, you know, again, you, you've always been of the industry, but not about the industry, if that's a fair way of saying it. You know, you, you've always been about beer and fun and all those sorts of things, but also quality, which, um, you know, and, and, and all of it, you know, a, a professionalism in having that fun, which I, which, which I, fascinates me about whether it was a conscious effort or whether it was something that you learned along the way or whether it was, you know, a, a mix of yin and yang between personalities in the business. I think, I think we were just busy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. As you say, we, we started at a pretty relentless pace and, um, you know, we're, we're 10 years in and it's still, still going, going strong. And it's, you know, we're, we just like to, to focus on, on what we do. We also, I don't know, especially on my side, I try not to pay too much attention what's going on in the industry outside. It's very hard not to let that sort of just filter into your mindset, you know. Mm. You don't have to, like, actively plagiarise people, but if you're, you know, if you're very swept up in what's going on in the industry, it's hard to come up necessarily with, with fresh ideas. I try to avoid having too much to do with it. There's... A lot of cool things come from getting a little bit bigger. I mean, you know, the stuff we've done around sustainability, stuff we've done around, you know, living wage, um, you know, the stuff we've done engaging with the community and trying to, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do when you get a little bit bigger, um, which, you know, when you're really small and hand to mouth, um, it, it's a lot harder to do. So, you know, that's something I'm looking forward to doing more of in the future, I'd say. I had it put to me by Peter Bucharek. You know, he's the Rodenbach brewmaster and, and ex-brewmaster um, at New Belgium for a number of years. 
and yep. um, we are sharing a beer at the Asheville tap room and it, just giving us a tour of this you know phenomenal brewery and um, and just and just um, let me know. He's like, oh, I'm actually re- I'm moving on. I'm retiring from New Belgium. I'm going to set up my own little, go back to my own brewing roots and do my own little project. But you know, he he said something which has always really struck with me. And he said, whenever they decided to grow at New Belgium, they grew to grow people. And uh, you know, you we see that ourselves. You have these amazingly talented people come up with sometimes no prior experience in the industry, and they work their way up into interesting positions. But you know they can potentially hit a ceiling, and you know if by virtue you're you're still growing, you're actually growing opportunities for your people, and I think that's a great reason to to grow as a craft brewery. That's one of the great things as we've watched the industry. You know, big isn't bad, and you know all of these things that were once little limiting mindsets about the industry. You know, growth is being embraced because of all of the benefits it brings, and you know the the, the resources and the beer quality, and you know all of the things that it it, it makes possible. I guess the flip side of that is the bigger you grow, you start to become a you know potential target either to be attacked or be bought. You know, is Garage Project at that stage? Uh, Pete, I read an interview yesterday, uh, recently where you talked about being 50 and, uh, you know, you've been doing something for 10 years and, you know, has discussion around exit strategies you know, it had to sort of feature around the boardroom table as well as professionalism and fun and those sorts of things. Who the fuck would want to buy a garage project? I mean, really, what a nightmare. <laughs> I also have to I have to say that Lion Nathan, I was an employee of Lion Nathan at some point. I'm probably somewhere on a computer record as being one of their worst ones. So, um, yeah, they probably don't want to go back there. Uh, well, you, but you say that, but, you know, as you said, you know, you, You've both been doing this for ten years. You've sort of, uh, you know, you've built something that is an asset. You're not just going to get to the stage where one day to say this isn't fun anymore. You know, lock the door and just walk away from it. You know, they're, 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 you've got something that you can't just do that from. So, is there talk about those sorts of things? I mean, we've always said to that, you know, never say never, because as we just talked about earlier when you, you, you know, nail your colours to a mast or something. <laughs> setting yourself up to look like a hypocrite. And, you know, yeah, I think any any brewery over the last five or six years doing something interesting has had people come knocking on their door, I think. That that wouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. I just don't think we've ever seen anything mm. that made us feel we could do, do what we want to do better, more creatively or more in a more powerful way or a more, you know, so, you know, and I, again, there's, you know, there's, there's some phenomenal examples of, of companies and businesses and breweries who have, have gone down um, paths of uh, doing things their own way and not having to sort of sell out to sort of like magically materialize a reward or, you know, a return or, you know, we've, we've always grown the business out of um, cash flow and retained earnings and supported that with bank debt and, Mm. I think it's, you know, we, we haven't tried to grow at an unsustainable rate or um, sell our beer at low prices to get, you know, greater market share and convince someone to like swoop in and buy us because that's the only real outcome. This is one of the repercussions, and I don't mean to put you on, I'm, you know, I don't ask that accusingly, it's out of a, a genuine interest because we've just seen in Australia, um, you know, Stone and Wood, which could have said much of all of those things itself and had really positioned itself as an independence-centred brewery um, and 
you know, even three, four months ago was talking about IPOs and things like that. And, uh, you know, their general manager or their, their managing director who left at the start of the year had given a quote not long before about being a hundred year brewery. Um, and, you know, really positioning itself in the consumer mindset as being a business that had cracked, you know, threaded that needle of being able to grow and not have to sell and then suddenly sold because, and then the narrative suddenly changed. Well, you know, when you've got four partners who want to do different things, you know, are, are these things that you guys have had to talk? I, I'm not sure what the business structure is, whether it's just the two of you and, you know, a, a couple of other investors or, you know, are these things that you guys have had to talk about? Well, you know, what if I want to go off and do something different? How do we, you know, work out this thing that is inherently valuable? How do we give ourselves the, the, the freedom and the flexibility to, to, to do other things if we ever reach that stage. Yeah, and I think, you know, it is about having some long-term thinking. You know, going going back to those early examples of not thinking about this, you know, where are we going to put the next fermenters after this? And I think we are trying to have much longer-term thinking now. Um, but it's also, I think that's the interesting thing as we, as we do get to a larger scale, we have other opportunities that we can explore, other creative uh, itches we can scratch, you know, I mean, again, like the Hoppy research, um, you know, that that is about bringing new hops to the market for, for us to use and other breweries to use. Mm. I'm really excited about that. But, you know, we're investing a lot of resource and time and money into that project. And, and, and you know, when those hops come to market, we will have some ownership in that IP and we will actually have some of that being a passive income stream for the brewery. So, just trying to be maybe a little left field, a little lateral in the way we think about things um, so that it's not just about, you know, driving volume and getting on that treadmill and, you know, getting to that end point where it's just the, you know, we had to sell and that was the only the only possible outcome. Well, and it's not even having to sell. It's, you know, whether you want to sell, you know. And Pete, you're, you're looking very thoughtful stroking your beard there. I think exactly, I mean, exactly what Josh said. I mean, never say never. Have we ever had an exit strategy? No, that would have required far more planning than we've actually done. I mean, I've seen some other breweries and I think, gosh, they've been bloody clever with that, haven't they? You know, I mean, if you if you have a really tight brand and a good beer and you don't have anyone who's particularly associated as a, as a, as a personality with that brand... And so that's the perfect thing to sell to, to a large player. But um, that's obviously not what Joss and I have done at all. We really have just focused on, you know, as Joss said, scratching the itches that, that we have and doing the things that we enjoy doing. So um, probably done a pretty shithouse job of trying to get ourselves ready to sell to somebody if that's what we, what we were going to do. But, um, yeah. look, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I mean, we I think, Joss and I have every intention of continuing to grow Garage Project, you know, until it got to a spot where we were completely happy. And knowing both of us, I'm not sure when that would be. So continue to grow and and who knows what that will mean. Yeah. Really not trying to put you on the spot or, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's it, it, this is an industry podcast, and we've seen you know as you see the the you know flowers that have bloomed over the years. You know whether it's New Belgiums and businesses that have, gave every appearance of having sorted. You know they they did have a um, you know a, a set of values that did seem to say that they were trying to find another path mm. other than a sale. Um, and it's no sign of failure. You know if you do that, but you know 
in Australia, we've got Coopers, which has, you know, entering its sixth generation. And, you know, I, I, there, there seems to be a lot of businesses that aspire to having multi-generational businesses. But, uh, and I was just wondering, you know, a garage project has been an independent um, minded brewery that has always, it's done its own thing. So that's where I'm coming at, you know, this line of questioning from to sort of think about, you know, what is the garage project way of doing what you do? And I think it'll, it will be some lateral things like, like hops, like, you know, it, it, you know, might have started in beer, it could go into all sorts of directions. You know, I think that's the fun thing we like about even just the name having project in it. It's mm. it to that concept that it's ongoing, it's a work in progress, it's evolving and changing. Absolutely. And I can't imagine, I don't know, I don't think my children have got any interest whatsoever in um, pursuing brewing. So certainly don't think it will be multi-generational. But I do feel like what Garage Project does have is a gravity that pulls other cool people in towards it. I mean, can't emphasise enough just what a cool team of people we have at GP. And I think, you know, that's that's the future of Garage Project is obviously Joss and I, you know, continuing to be here and having fun and, you know, helping to grow other people who will actually probably rise up and, and join with us in, in what we do. I think that that, if anything, is probably the future. Great. Look, I, I'm just very mindful of the time. You know, that's that's about as good a place. Unless there's something you guys want to say about it, have you got any, uh, you know, big plans uh, or anything like that? No, I, I haven't um, picked up on some of the things you've said about the Happy Project. So I'd love to do something just much more extensively about that as a as a standalone and give it the full focus that it deserves, rather than have it as a little bit of a sideline of of, of this chat about other things. Yeah. Absolutely. Pete, Joss, thank you so much. Congratulations uh, you know, on, on, on 10 years. Congratulations on the Brewers Guild Award and uh, you know, congratulations on just everything that you've achieved and in the, in the way you've gone about doing it. It's been a, a fascinating to just be a, an observer watching uh, the, that train ride by. Out of control train. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a real pleasure, Matt. Thank you very much. And that was Pete Gillespie and Joss Ruffle. If you're a listener, don't forget to join the conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join our Facebook group, obviously you're on Facebook, just search for Radio Brews News and use the password Soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, reviewing us on the Apple podcast or your favourite podcasting service, or emailing us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts and story suggestions. And you can find links to each of those, particularly throwing us a few dollars in the show notes. We'll be back later in the week with our regular news roundup on Thursday night. Thank you for joining us.